You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. IPOs are expected to fit a certain pattern, and when they deviate from that, it often sounds an alarm. Investors expect an IPO to list a small slice of the total shares outstanding to generate artificial demand, which will lead to a pop in the share price. And then even if that pop fades, we then expect that, for fundamentally sound businesses, the stock will do well over a long period. Certain venture capitalists will complain that the pop left money on the table. Certain IPOs will bust, whether it's because the fundamental business is poor or whether it's because, like Facebook, they price aggressively or like Uber and WeWork, somewhere in between and questions over the financial model come to roost. But we know the game. The game usually does not involve the key governmental regulator booting the company's app from the app stores a few days after IPO, or cracking down on the company's business model in the weeks after it goes public. It's happened twice in 2021 now, first with RLX technology and then last week with Didi Global. Both are China-based companies, which begs the question, are these companies investable? Or maybe more fundamentally, is a bellwether like Alibaba investable in a climate like this? On this week's episode, Akram and I break down the Didi news and the calculus for China, for investors, and for the U.S. We talk investing versus betting, the importance of entering at the right multiple, and what an ADR actually gets you. And we talk a lot about Alibaba, both whether it's investable and whether that matters. I think you'll enjoy this one. For disclosures, Akram is along Twitter and short yalla. I have no positions in any stocks that came up. Nothing on here is investment advice, as you know. Okay, let's get rolling. Akram, one of the more interesting recent stories, and you've been doing some talking about this on Twitter and elsewhere, is what's going on in. China right now, there was the Didi, the car share service, the triumphant car share service Uber lost out there. They were the apparently the pick of the Chinese government to win that market. Their IPO got, I don't know what the right, it was a fracaso, the Spanish word is coming to me. a total failure in terms of they go public, raise $4 billion, and then they're banned from the app store. They're put under a serious review from the government. 
And I think it raises a lot of questions for investing in those names in general. What do you, and I'm prepared if you send this back to me, but what do you make of Diddy first before we go into some of the other more well-known names? Like what's, what's going on right now? What do you think? Well, I mean, look, the, the first interpretation of it was a slap in the face by the Chinese, right? Like the company lists, it's got some disclosed regulations, sorry, dis- disclosed regulatory concerns and the risk factors like anybody else. And then those risk factors turn into actual material impact on the business within three days of listing. And the like the, the general take when you first see it is like, oh, this is like, this is a, this is a geopolitical maneuver, right? By the Chinese essentially being like, hey, this company's gonna raise some money and then we're gonna slap you in the face, <laughs> right? But that's not how the Chinese are viewing it. So the argument here is that th- this company was, was warned very clearly not to move ahead with its IPO until certain things were resolved and they decided to do it anyway. Which places the onus on, in the China perspective, on the management team at the company, from a U.S. investor's perspective, on also the management, but also potentially the I-banks, the investment banks that brought the company public, because somebody dropped the ball in terms of not knowing what was going on here and greenlighting this to happen. And they raised, they raised money at $14 a share, which... From the headline, I just saw $67 billion valuation, so not trivial. They raised about $4 billion, and then this crackdown came out. The stock is now trading just above $11 a share, so at the very least, you feel stupid for funding the company when now there's so much unknown, right? So oh, look, this, It's called the Cyberspace Administration of China, and the word is that they communicated to Diddy that you shouldn't list and that internally the the counter is that diddy investors you know so here's how you got to think about this if if in a market like this let's just look at it from a purely capitalistic standpoint in a market like this if a regulator approaches me with what's been going on in china and tells me wink wink etc etc like (laughs) you should uh, not list right now because we're finishing up some reviews here and uh it's not a good look what are you gonna do you're gonna be like we need to move faster <laughs> so right in other words get out public to at least because we might never get public otherwise well and that's not even a question of whether you might not get public otherwise it's just like you're like you're gonna get more money and a higher valuation and a better exit for your investors but not being, if you want to call it, able to ever get public is a risk. The, the windows can close in the market, right? I mean, you've seen the you've seen companies that run into walls, which is like, I mean, take WeWork. I mean, WeWork under COVID is a fantastic company, right? Like, if it didn't go through the, like the topsy turvy fiasco that it went through beforehand in that market window at the end of 2019, you know, it almost became the the poster child for excess. In the private markets today, it's it's it would be fantastic. So, like, yeah, if you're Diddy and you got hit with 
notable regulatory uncertainty around your model and they pulled you from the app store and everything else, I mean, that's going to take your IPO off the table for six months. And if it takes your IPO off the table for six months, yes, you're correct. Like it, that may actually be worse than whatever incremental valuation you miss in the next couple of weeks. But this is like, I mean, here's the thing with China, right? And this is what we've been discussing around this. And I think this is what we should focus on is our Chinese companies, like there was a guy who tweeted yesterday on Twitter, who works for uh, some venture investment firm, it seemed, Spring something or associates. And he's just like, there's wonderful businesses in China like you that you can invest in. And I, I replied, I was like, what's, what's not in question here is that there aren't wonderful businesses, but like it's whether the Chinese ADR for an American investor as a structure works. And I mean, that's kind of where we're running into because the, like the regulatory apparatus that you're dealing with on both sides appears unclear. And the geopolitical tensions between both sides have added this kind of wrinkle. Now, if you think about it, like if we, if we just view Diddy in isolation, it's one thing, but you can't view Diddy in isolation. Before Diddy, I mean, RLX is trading at like $7. That's the Chinese jewel. And that listed and it was a home run. It was like $30 and, you know, closes first day and very clear uh, disclosures about regulatory risks. And now, of course, it's being sued by investors for, you know, supposedly overstating their performance and understating the regulatory risks because like a month after it listed, the Chinese regulators decided to crack down on e-cigarettes. So like, and this is, again, it's like a question of like, this is something that's ongoing and was pretty well known. And your investors got an exit before the regulator came at him, because that's another one where you're just like, all right, like you may not be public for a year or more once these new rules come out, because people are going to want to see how that impacts your business and how you adjust to it. And then you got Alipay and financial was supposed to list. Jack Ma gives a speech. Boom, that's gone. And that's got the, you know, the, the uh, if you want to call it the macro or the regulatory factor that's kind of weighed on Alibaba shares. And then you've got stuff just like, you know, you've got names where there's just like an, an, an underlying distrust of what's being reported. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but the Chinese major securities regulator came out, regulator, and was like, you know, our goal is to crack down on these variable interest entities, the buy structures where you listen to Cayman. It's because when you buy a Chinese ADR, they, they just passed these laws. Well, what do you call it? Not these laws. Trump passed the, what's it called, law on the way out. Compliance, US government, what is it called? The Holding Foreign Companies Accountable yeah, Act, is. which bars securities of foreign companies. They need to comply with the accounting oversight board audits three years in a row. Or they need to do it if they don't comply three years in a row, they're booted. Which yeah, I mean, delist I, you. It's it's like a new it's a new card to play to delist essentially Chinese companies. Well, because there seems there's like there's I mean there's a lot of issues, but I, I think you've kind of laid out. Let me just repackage them a little bit, and we can maybe jump into them. Seems like there are three main main issues. There's can you trust the companies, which is sort of its own, like, and that's sort of related to this, at least the intention of an act like that, which is, can you trust the numbers? That's, 
That's question one. Question two is, can you trust that you have a real share in the company? Because what are these ADRs or ADSs actually worth? What is the variable interest entity? Like if you're in the Cayman Islands, are you actually, do you actually have a piece of Alibaba, et cetera? I think that's number two. And number three is then, do you trust the regulatory environment or do you trust whatever's going on? And I think it's more opaque what's happening in China. How are investors able? Because for all that you're saying about RLX or Didi running to get to public before their prospects look materially worse, that may or you can argue the case for them from a self-interest standpoint, but really stinks for investors who maybe should have known better or maybe need to be cautious. But nevertheless, they they weren't expecting a crackdown. And so now they're left holding a, a less valuable bag. So I guess those those to me seem like the three issues. And I think from for specifically actually those second setting aside, can you trust them? That's like that's always sort of been there with China going back to all the Sino Forest type issues more than a I decade mean, just ago. Just recently luck, luck and coffee, right? So I mean And a certain audio chat stock that we've mentioned a couple of times that also raises questions. So yeah, like that's still there, but that's that to me, it seems like the other issues are actually more relevant right now, right? Like, like walk us through the the ADR thing and the whole Cayman yeah, Islands. So what there's a counter is that the the like if if you were even to get them to go to the compliance with respect to U.S. audit rules, right? That like what you're getting to comply is the books of the Cayman entity. Because the ownership structures that are being circumvented through these variable interest entities don't like you actually don't directly own a claim on the operating business inside China in mainland China. Right. Yeah. Like you're, I mean, the whole, and I saw your tweet yesterday, which was maybe in the same world as far as painting, uh, what, what's the difference between a painting and stock? But the whole point of a share is that you have a legal claim to, the cash flows from a business and you expect them to be either returned to well, the share. No, like you have voting share in the company, right? right. Oh, right. Which could in theory, in theoretically at some point get you to the point where you could control the business or take the business private by acquiring, then you actually would be able to get a share. But if the voting rights, I mean, we've seen these multiple class of shares in the U S where the way it's set up today, you're you're not going to be able to knock out Mark Zuckerberg, correct? Right, and Facebook. So, I mean, set aside that you need to get a majority control of the business, you would have needed a, you know over half a billion or whatever it was. But that's when it goes to a board and different shareholders, and the whole concept of the public company, you know, a joint stock com- company, right? And that's where you get into like, is do you actually have a claim? Well, when it comes to China, you don't. Like, you're not going to be able to get majority control as a foreigner of Alibaba sitting on the outside of China. You need local partners, you need entities to circumvent these. And by the way, like, as someone who's been in a market which has those types of rules, you, you would hit shareholder limits on foreign ownership, you know, in, in, in the GCC. And if you want to set up a business in, the, in, in a Gulf country, you need a local affiliate a partner. I mean, there's free zones and, and, and different things, but 
these are the types of things that you run into in in developing markets that you consider are kind of you know has been a given. We got him past this after a couple hundred years in the Western world of public companies. So with the Chinese, you've always had this in there, but no one's really cared because we haven't really run into an issue. Or yeah, or the issues seem yeah, small enough, you can sort of look aside Alipay or you can look aside Luckin, whatever. Well, if you go back to the Alibaba IPO in 2014, like we, we had a bit of a dynamic there around the ownership of Alipay. Yahoo didn't end up getting what Yahoo was going to get. Like in theory, who, who founded Alipay and how should Alipay have been set up? Ant Financial, the ownership was essentially stripped away and put in like a separate Jack Ma related entity, right? With the government. And that was a big deal then. I think I'd say that's the, that's the last time there was like let's call it the, a notable stripping of something of value for political reasons, supposedly because uh, Ant Financial is just too much of a strategic asset. And then you just saw it recently. You saw the flip side of that, where you know he criticized the government and the Ant Financial IPO just got canceled. Well, and I think you look at the difference between you know Alibaba. I think was the first really big. Chinese IPO that also had like real heft and real like you there were it sort of dispelled a lot of the doubts and then you start buying you see the innovation from a lot of these Chinese companies whether it's Weibo or in WeChat WeChat which is inside of Tencent and all everything that Tencent is doing Alibaba JD and obviously JD has had its issues with the CEO and other things but. Like you start to see, you sort of, it's once there's that, okay, there's something real here, then you sort of set aside those political concerns because you're like, all right, we're past the Sino Forest stage and we're sort of at, these are real companies that you're being, you're just biased against China if you don't believe that they're a real company. And I think that's kind of helps to make it a little bit harder to narrate because you can't just stick to one simple story now you have to kind of set it dig into okay but are there still risks and okay is it real but how real is it like it's sort of how we talk about with yeah you're not going to go back to zero internet but the rate of growth may not match what you've gotten used to and maybe that's something here in china too but anyway i'm I'm sort of digressing a little bit to talk about like there's sort of this framework that people may have had about Chinese companies, China-based companies in the early 2010s that now as they've they've updated but you can overcorrect in some ways and that's where something like what happens in the past couple of weeks is a reminder of oh no there's still I mean Didi was this week that's a reminder there's still I mean Didi's been the most extreme example right like the window is so short that like you initially look at it as almost a, a move designed to irritate the U.S. regulators and U.S. markets, but Diddy has huge invest. I mean, like Diddy's got Uber as an investor. Uber China, right, was was rolled into Diddy. Like a lot of the money in these things. This goes back to the conversation we were just having earlier with ByteDance TikTok, right? And the investors in ByteDance. I mean, ByteDance gets trolled a lot around where the data is held for us and that being security concern for americans who are tiktok users and i'm just like yeah but like who are the beneficial shareholders of ByteDance? 
I mean, Sequoia, KKR, Susquehanna, and there's the long list of U.S. entities. And it's no different when you look at something like Diddy, same thing. Long list of Western-oriented SoftBank VCs. And, and not just VCs, I guess you can call them these days because like, well, what is a venture capital the, the, compared to you know, a long short fund? We're seeing a lot of overlap there as well uh, in the public and private markets. So, you know, it's uh, call it Wall Street, call it Silicon Valley, call it whatever the nexus is, but they're actively involved. So this can also be characterized as, hey, this is this is an aggressive move by the investors there to protect their value ahead of what is going on in China, which is essentially to rein in their internet companies. Like they don't want things to, to, to like the Chinese are taking a, set aside what we trust in their numbers as American investors and, and and that problem. Like this is being framed from from their end as like well, Ant Financial, Diddy. RLX, it's not about cracking down on, uh, it's not about, uh, you know, screwing over U.S. investors. It's about cracking down from a purely regulatory uh, standpoint on the types of stuff that you would do the same thing in the United States, right? Uh, and that's like tobacco, smoking, and privacy. And in, this, in the sense of those companies, the Chinese regulators are about to make moves. And the counter argument is that the owners of these businesses knew that and you know got out early. So it's not the Chinese slapping you in the face. It's Western investors who are the the biggest owners in these. Just, you know, it's capitalism at work. Right? Yeah. It's not a political move. They're like one step ahead of the regulators. But it's viewed in the it's it's initially viewed by us as hey the Chinese are just taking you for a bat. Well, yeah. So, so right, there's the two sides of normal regulation versus whatever. But there's got to be something to China is a more centrally controlled economy and government. Obviously, I mean, I know there's the blend of capitalism and sort of communistic power, political power. But it's it's hard for given that, you know, I, I just read, for example, Super Pumped, the book about Uber. And they didn't it doesn't really get into on the ground discussions about why Uber didn't win in China. It basically argues that the Chinese government supported Didi and they just had the wherewithal and Uber was never going to get over the hump. They just had to keep subsidizing rides. They were burning millions and billions of cash over the years there, whatever. But there is still the sense that if you make it in China as a big company, you have the blessing of the government. They're, like, they're not going to let you go without success, whether that's a Western company like Apple or a local company like Xiaomi. And so I guess... Within that, it does the timing here does look suspect, and it does look like, and maybe it's just like all organizations that they're not organized enough to really control preventing the IPO before the regulatory crackdown or whatever. But there are 
it's interesting to think about what is the calculus here that you have to watch out for from the Chinese government. Like, what are their interests here? Is it, I mean, you just laid out the case that maybe it's just normal business and it's just, you know, they want to regulate as the U.S. would. But I do think it's fair to say, like, if you invest in Alibaba, A, like, what is your share actually worth in terms of those things we talked about, voting rights or whatever? But then also, at one point, do you trust that they'll be able to run their business effectively versus the government saying, we're concerned that this power is growing too fast, or we're concerned that it's somehow not helping the Chinese, our vision of what China needs. You know what I mean? Like, that's got to be a consideration. Yeah, no, I mean, look, that's the hard hard thing to figure out here, right? Because you do have an ongoing conflict. Let's call it, not conflict, trade tensions between, between both sides that make it difficult to ascertain whether this is part of geopolitics going on or it's just them doing internal house cleaning. And it's look, I mean, the, my first response to this is that the way we, we need to look at this from a market standpoint is that Chinese ADRs are, are uninvestable. And when I was trying to explain that, I was like, I explained that in the sense that I can't prioritize what I'm looking at in the business when I want to buy something and say, this is undervalued, it's cheap relative to this. It's cheap relative to this because the claim on ownership in the structure that you hold the stock is being questioned. And if you don't view it that way, then how can you actually make an argument that that discount is going to go away without you being able to explain why it's why that discount exists for that particular reason? Like we just like are going over here and why it would why it would narrow in the immediate future. Yeah. In other words, you're uh, it's hard to, you know, you can look at Alibaba, for example, and say it's I think the math I did before today was something like 22 and a half times enterprise value to EPS trailing. Right. Which is a pretty for uh, if you offered Google at that price, that's a pretty attractive price or Amazon or any of them. Like it's a major e-commerce player, et cetera. But yeah, to your point, the market can do that math too. And so for you to have a better understanding of that, you have to have some vision into either that calculus or into, like you said, why is this going to change? Or you may as well just bet in a China ETF or Chinese tech ETF or in the because they're all like I would looking at the charts, all of these big names are more or less the same chart, right? There's a peak peak somewhere six months ago, and then otherwise it's just kind of a even even bump, whether it's Pindu Duo or and I'm sure I'm getting the pronunciations wrong, I apologize, or Tencent or JD, like they're all kind of Alibaba, I think, is doing the worst of them is the closest to its 52-week lows, but it's all sort of the same. And yeah, you in, would expect Alibaba to be trading north of $300 right now. It should be trading at a, a premium to an Amazon multiple, right? So like, let's call it, it should be trading over 30 times EV EBITDA in this tape. I mean, at the rate it's growing with its margins and being at the heart of online commerce, 
and, and the way those stocks are valued, like that's where it should trade. So like the only reason it doesn't trade there is because of the current Chinese dynamic. And by the way, the ant financial probably adds a little element there too. If that was a, if that IPO had gone forward, there's value to be notably extracted from their stake in it. So like if you were to view it in that sense, you've got 50% minimum upside here relative to Fang. That's how I would approach it from a very simple relative valuation exercise and $500 billion plus businesses, which is where you like hyperscalers. So that's the way you got to look at it. And it's not trading there. So it's like the argument is, this goes back to like, which should I buy Alibaba here? And I bought Alibaba earlier in the year around this level and it went up to like 270, right? And at that time, it was like, thought like I was getting exploiting relative value in the market and like, you know, excessive fear over Jack Ma being right. dead or disappeared, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then like, by the time you get to this time around, I'm like, look, it's uninvestable. But does that mean you can't buy the stock? I mean, <laughs> Alibaba is surely more investable than AMC. So like this is where you get into like what type of investor you are. And when I say it's uninvestable, I say it's uninvestable because I can't explain to you what would make the situation better. Like I can see a, uh, I can see a scenario, although like highly unlikely, where it's just kind of delisted, and you don't essentially own a claim, and you know it's like a take under, and you have to take whatever is offered. I mean that can happen, and that's part of like the things that have happened with some of these Chinese companies. We had a period where a lot of them were going back home, and like you were seeing these, these mergers, where you start buying them at X, Y, and Z value, and like this has this much cash on hand, and so on and so forth. And you get a take under. Like we were just, we we're discussing this in relation to uh, well, YY recently on, on Twitter. There's a bunch of people who doubt the cash that's there. But the cash is supposedly coming from, well, not supposedly. I mean, Baidu has confirmed it. But yes, Baidu and value related to Tencent, right? And it's like, all right, well, I mean, are these companies lying? Or is the stock being valued the way it is? Because it's so much cash relative to an operating business and you believe that there's going to be shenanigans that are done by the people who control that cash that don't involve buying back the stock or taking the company private for the benefit of shareholders because they don't view you as the people who they're working for. Like this is where you get into this whole idea of what, what, what are you buying when you buy a public company? I mean, I remember an, an executive of a public company explaining the the idea of like investor meetings. And he's like, you know, it's great. They asked me all these questions on the cash on the balance sheet and this and that and that. And it's like, but as soon as that meeting's over, what's to stop me from leveraging the company to the hilt to go enter some new business? <laughs> and like that being a complete total disaster. So like so much of the analysis you're, you're really doing is a moot point if you don't consider like, uh, what the what the operator like is the operator interest aligned with his shareholders and can he be held accountable like in theory getting fired and replaced immediately and so on and so forth your board just meeting in an emergency manner and saying this is this is unacceptable so on. like these are the types of things that you, you like you don't really like these are the hypotheticals that you don't really think about when it comes to u.s stock investing right and we've been forced here to look at these. And by the way, the Chinese, had, like, it's not like they haven't been passing laws. Like after the financial IPO, they passed an anti-monopoly law. I don't know if you remember that. 
So like, it's like it's it's they beefed up their antitrust re- regulations to give them you know final approval of power over M and A conducted by variable interest rate entities, right? So, like the Chinese are adapting their legal system to deal with this because these variable interest rate entities largely exist for the fact that these Chinese businesses are funded notably by foreign investors initially. I mean, think about them, you know, Tencent, Baba, ByteDance. It's Western capital that's played a big part in all of those. So you can make you can make a very clear argument that they're just they're protecting their own interests. Right, which is tough to invest in from I mean, that's where you get back to the uninvestable claim. Well, what's a better outcome, buying AMC or Alibaba here? Well, I think there's, I mean, yeah, I would probably say Baba because there's, you have more faith <laughs> in their business. But I think there, there, there are a couple of things interesting. First, I think AMC is interesting because a lot of what you're describing in the U.S. market, there are like... There's laws and there's also some degree of norms there, right? And there's some degree of, well, I expect management to fudge or to lie to me to a degree, but I also expect them to conduct themselves with some degree of standards. And that's where things like how Elon Musk is on Twitter and behavior towards the SEC and 420 funding confirmed goes to Adam Aaron courting the apes and talking about this and that even as they're trying to raise more shares etc like there's a degree of shame that we expect in the markets that you know increasingly seems vanishing and maybe that's being naive and whatever else but it does feel like there's a little bit of disruption of those norms in the u.s markets even but then there's also to your point with baba i think i think about something that we've talked about a lot and that you've argued a lot with the growth stocks, where what's frustrating about this market is that so much of it is just factor driven by a like, where are you really generating alpha on an individual stock basis? Like, where are you really nailing analysis on stock? And where are you just picking the right trend to follow? And the algos and everything you're else just starting to sound like me. Well, no, but I like I was thinking about this when I, I I look I wrote a little portfolio review for Q2 and I was just you know every day I open my portfolio and I can tell you that my stocks will be trading I'll look at the S and P and I'll look at the Russell and my stocks will probably be pulled towards the Russell and so and that's a reflection of either a value factor or a small cap factor or to a tiny degree a travel factor and so like. Is there anything I'm really doing here or am I just like waiting for, you know, and I can tell you that while I'm picking stocks that I have a degree in confidence that they're not going to zero. And so that allows me to ride out the storm and all that stuff. But I think that's what's also interesting with the Chinese stocks is I could see the argument for, well, Baba's the biggest. So when this stuff clears, Baba's the name everybody knows. And it'll go, like you said, back to 300 and boom, who cares? Like, We'll write well, it out. Then at that point, you'll have a bunch of people be like, hey, you, I bought this here when everybody was scared and you said it was uninvestable. And that's where you get to the point where you're like, look, I'm not telling you don't buy the stock here. 
and I'm not telling you that there isn't a really strong case to buy that. I'm saying that what you're pointing out here, the factors and, and the, like the, this, like let's call it structural discount, is what's the driving force. And like you'll have a person who's like, I bought a wonderful business, you know, on sale for this, and it's like, but what's changed in the last decade? It's just like we, with every passing year, the concerns around these structures have grown more and more and more, and there's like you didn't tell me that you have some visibility that this is the peak of it. And from here on out, the, the Chinese are finishing, you know, crackdowns eternally in the country. And after that, it's regulatory uh, blue sky. So if you came out and told me that, I'd be like, all right, fantastic. If you're just going to tell me, I'm going to take a chance here on this. I'm like, well, I mean, it's better than buying AMC. Yeah. it's well, There was a, there was a nice tweet. I saw this Gen- Genevieve Roche Decte, she said, I think she tweeted something like your time frame, right? If you're less than a few months, it's speculating. If it's one to two years, it's betting. If it's five years, it's investing, whatever. And without getting into, I feel like there's a distinction between betting and investing. And if you can just say, I'm going to bet, I'm going to take a punt, as you'd say, that China, this is going to get resolved. People are going to be less scared of China things will go up, right? I'm going to take a punt that the Delta variant is going to fade in three weeks and travel stocks are going to go up, right? Like, and that's fine. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it is, there's, there is some sort of distinction, I think, between that and Costco is a great company and I know they're going to be fine 10, 10 years from now, they're going to be bigger. So I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to buy dips, whatever, like to use a silly example. And so I think that's with the China companies, it feels like, yeah, it's it's uninvestable because it's hard to say 10 years from now, Alibaba is still going to be in a growth position. It's still going to be, the regulatory climate is going to be fair towards them. They're not going to have crossed any lines and they're going to continue to be, I I think that's, that's what it is here. And so if you're making that bet, is there is Alibaba the best way to make that bet? Is it better to just buy KWeb or whatever the other Chinese tech ETFs are? Is it better to buy JD or Tencent, which haven't been in or whatever? I mean, I, I'm not an oh, expert. JD's, J, JD's like, I, I'd say JD's been an outlier performance wise throughout this whole, like that's where you would have done the best. And even that just recently has been kind of been pulled in somewhat with respect to the Chinese. Yeah, name. it's not at the lowest well, yeah, I mean, way, mean. Baba should be trading at you know thirty times plus EV EBITDA, and uh, if you're looking at the way other names are being valued, it's just it's it's, it's that simple. But Baba is also interesting in the sense that it's not exactly it's not it's not a huge deal. Like you're paying a Facebook multiple for it, and we assume so, that there's more growth in China, but I don't know. I mean, even that you could—that's probably getting into a bigger. Yeah, I mean, margins haven't really been like. This is a company that had above norm margins when it listed, and the the margin expansion has not really been a story. Just been a top line story. We were talking about like buying a stock at the wrong price. Bob is always interesting in the sense that if you bought Bob in 2014, you paid. I mean, it was doing when it's when its F1 came out. The last completed fiscal year, it ended up pricing at at roughly forty times that. By the time it was trading and at the growth rate, you were paying like forty times sales. You're talking 
40 times revenue, yes, yeah. EV, EV to sales. And by the time it was trading, it was maybe more like 20. But I mean, the stock opened, you know, in the 90s, traded a little over 100. So it was like, it was, it was like a 205, $210 billion company or so on its first day of trading. And it's, it's essentially doubled since, I mean, just under seven years, All right? September of 14. So that's like a, it's literally an 11%, 11%, 12% CAGR. And you've done it with the company that's gone from like just under 4 billion in trailing revenue to about 110. So do the math there, 25X or so. So I was just thinking like, if you, if we know we were talking about, if you paid, if you paid 50 times sales for, for Facebook, you would have drastically underperformed the market in the first three years. You paid 25 times sales, you outperformed and, you know, by about 40, 40%, you know, S&P was up like 50 in three years and Facebook was up like just, just under a hundred, but they quadrupled revenues, you know, at scale with like 50% margins. So like if you paid a little bit more, like you would have notably outperformed just buying the S&P. In Baba's case, you made 100% when the QQQs did 250% in that window. And by the way, if you remember Alibaba listed, its first day of trading, it, it was worth more than Amazon.com. Like Amazon was just under 200 billion there in 2014. So Amazon is now a $2 trillion company, right? Or, or roughly right about there. And Baba is... 500 billion or what so like you essentially north, 10x yeah. it yeah you you essentially 10x in amazon to your 2x in in baba right so i was pointing out that like you really got screwed buying because and remember this is in this is in a market with like a very strong passive index investing right so if that was the case you really underperform and someone was like well you i don't consider doing this an underperformance uh, it wasn't really bad. It's not a disaster. Buying Blue Apron is a disaster. I'm like, no, Blue Apron, the business collapsed, the stock collapsed. That agrees. If you told if you told me that I bought a company whose revenues are going to 25x, you know, and it's already a multi-billion dollar revenue company with, with a good profitability, and you told me that it's going to 25x in the next five, six, to seven years, and I just was gonna, I was gonna do less than the index, I would be like, that's a fucking disaster. And and by the way, you get to this point today. Even if it was 300, not exactly at 350, it's 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 equal to the QQQs. So, in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, paying 40 times trailing sales in e-commerce is insane. (laughs) Because you can see, I mean, this is a company that's doing how much in GMV over a trillion. So when you look at some of these other names today. Like, I would just be like, look, dude, unless you believe that there's going to be perpetual multiple expansion, like, just look at these, at, the, at, 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 at what hill you had to climb in these names. Now, that's where you get into the whole thing about Baba, and you're just like, all right, then well, like, well, I might as well just buy it here. Why would I buy any other e-commerce stock if I believe that, like, you're getting past this when I can own this company at the rate it's growing at a discount to everybody else? Because, my, like, the criticism of a company like AMC doesn't go like we don't we don't believe it's a non-existent business, right? Like it goes back to the fact that Cinemark and IMAX and all these other names trade where they trade. 
it's a really weird time to be investing because, you know, we, we were talking about getting into travel today and I was thought we were, you know, like I've been really frustrated with my Boeing position and like I price Boeing based on where I think things should trade relative to 2018, 2019, like EV EBITDA. That's the only way we're looking at these names. And we've had conversations around AMC and I'm like, all right, but AMC trades at like 60 times 19 EBITDA. Forget what you, your views are on the movies. And Cinemark is at like six. So like, I have to go buy Cinemark unless Cinemark is the equivalent of a Chinese ADR. Because in the Cinemark business, I fundamentally would argue is strong. So why am I paying this? Well, you know, this is different. This is about protesting and financial populism and fucking the, the system and who knows what. It's a like there's a reason it became a meme and there's a reason Newegg has become a meme and there's like a reason everything goes through its meme phase. <laughs> you know, in reality, it seems there's no rhyme or reason to it. But when you when you can when you consider something like AMC, your reference point is the other businesses. And that's where you look at you like, I just don't see what like either these businesses are cheap or this is just a loser. Right. Like this thing is this is the, this thing is gonna be trading between 10 and 15 before the year is out. Just a matter of like what triggers it. And that goes back to all these macro variables that are involved, right? Like you could buy Alibaba here, it could not work out, but Fang may come in, right? Because you only look at Alibaba here and say it's cheap because of the way Fang multiples have expanded. Because I mean, if you look at if you look at what you're paying for revenue growth at Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. I mean, it's literally 2x what you were paying for that same revenue growth 12 months ago. I mean, every single one of them has had, even Apple, they've had their sales multiples double. So that's 100% premium to the previous multiple. So, so, I mean, it's the definition of exponential expansion. You go from six times sales in Microsoft, 12, you know, four to eight in Google, et cetera, and you're doing it on the back of COVID elevated growth. So when you look at Alibaba here, that's your benchmark. Alibaba needs to be trading right here uh, based on its, its profitability profile compared to these names. And like for most people, I think you would argue that Baba has more years ahead of outsized top line, but maybe that's wrong. Who knows? But either way, based on the last 12 months under COVID, Right, like why is it, why isn't Baba near the top of the range versus the bottom of the range? And that the argument is well, Baba and Jack Ma's got his issues, and you know the Chinese government is doing this, and that's why it trades there. But then if it trades there, how how are, how how do you own anything else of the Chinese ADRs? Yeah, and I think it all it's I, I think the bet versus invest still resonates even with those growth names too, because it's like even Baba from your point of it's doubling it from 40 times sales. Like you could look at that in a isolation and say, yeah, so that worked. I got a double in seven years. That's acceptable, whatever. But it's a risk, like the risk reward involved there. And this idea of, all right, well, what was your bet? What were you, or what was your investment case? And did that play out? And like you said, if your investment case was 27 X GMV and just, drastic multiple compression okay that's great and you you saw that seems like uh maybe that was actually maybe you just knew that and the risk reward was great that's fine but i guess that's what it comes down to is like there's this 
the bet you're making at a super high sales multiple, either you're betting that, well, the stock will just go back up, which is something we've talked about. And that's sort of sentiment-based analysis and it works until it doesn't. Or you think, you really think that Snowflake is going to outgrow AWS or whatever, like be bigger than AWS or whatever the you know numbers are there. Well, so I would argue that the majority of the people who looked at Alibaba in 2014 and bought it on the first day it started trading and I have held it, all right, felt that they were buying the Amazon of China in yeah, a sense. Totally. And in reality, that they should have bought Amazon.com. Right. But it's interesting to like hit is that is that because of the starting multiple? Is that because the well, the starting multiple played a huge factor in it because if you look at them today, they both roughly trade at the same sales multiple. So yeah, I mean four to five, four to five x. And in in the case, it was at scale relative to not being at scale yet. But remember, it was a more profitable business than Amazon. It it's it's commerce business is more profitable business than well, Amazon's commerce. And, and I think to be to be like you could flip that and say okay, but you were. The, arg- the arguments around Amazon then, this is sort of the, not to pick on him, but he used vocal and notable, this is the Paulo Santos era. The arguments around Amazon were still all about e-commerce. I don't think people quite realized the giant that AWS was yet or what that meant. Like, I still feel like there was a year or two away. And that's really, so you could argue- I mean, that's right where it started reflecting. And so you could argue that, all right, if you really knew AWS and that was your bet, Amazon was great. But if- we were looking on a pure GMV basis. Maybe that's like, so I could flip it and say, Amazon, you got lucky with, and whatever you could say, I bet I invest, I yeah, bet on I mean, Bezos, if you, whatever. If you, if, yeah, but if you were buying Amazon at that time and you did not understand the AWS, I mean, the AWS business comes out of financial crisis, right? So if you were buying it at that time, you kind of had to have a pretty decent view about that. And you had to have a decent view about Prime. Yeah, no, I, I I guess what I'm saying is that there was Amazon had other legs of the business that I don't, I, you know, pulling up Alibaba's either latest 6K or last year's 20F, e-commerce is still 86% of revenue. I think I saw the number. So like they haven't. Yeah, no, no, I mean, like Alibaba Cloud is still in its infancy. So if you actually believe that 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 gets to an AWS scale. And by the way, that's a whole other interesting argument. If you believe the Chinese cloud businesses are going to try to compete directly with the U.S. cloud businesses, uh, and that would uh, that's ever going to be viewed as acceptable, the cloud space is, from a margin standpoint, doomed. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, it's gonna it's gonna be messy. But yeah, I mean, I I would say nine out of ten investors at that time associated Amazon with what you're saying in the Santos era of e-commerce. So they looked at this and said, I'm buying uh, I'm oh, buying wow. the next e-commerce giant. And I, I didn't, they didn't really care what they were paying. The ones who were skeptical at the time were like, you're paying, like you can go buy Amazon already. But it's like, hey, this is Amazon, but really profitable mm-hmm. in e-commerce. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's I, I don't think anybody... Like if you go back to 14, I don't think anybody was really very critical of the Chinese element. It, I, was, it was a different, it was a different world then. I if think, you look at the guys who criticized Amazon over the years, so go ahead. Well, I think Baba was the one that changed, like re changed that world to like, oh no, this is a real business. This is 
I think they 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 were sort of the the cause of that as much as an effect of that. Well, you had Baidu, right? I mean, that was that was the yeah. uh, the blue chip from before. Yeah, that's fair. And ten cent in ten cent in in Asia. I don't remember when that listed. In Hong Kong, before I mean, like to me, the Chinese was always three stocks. It was Sina, Sohu, and uh, NetEase, uh, and those those three listed uh, in the post post Nasdaq bubble blow up, and they were you know fantastic money makers. And then Sina turned into a disaster, despite Weibo, because I mean, Sina was a classic example of uh, value destruction. Uh, being a Chinese, being a U.S. shareholder in a Chinese entity, because like the vehicles seem to be run in the CEO's favor. Like they were just, there's like, like, you know, they do like a convert that's structured at a discount to allow him to invest at a time uh, when the stock is depressed. There's a lot of dealing that goes on over there for the guys in charge. They're just like doing like a license for them to print money at your expense. Like realistically speaking, nobody can look at Cena today with what Weibo ended up being and say you got screwed. No one can't say that, right? Like it's a, it's a given. Like you did not get to benefit as a Cena holder of the value of Weibo. It was, it was just a mess. So there's a lot of that. Like this, uh, there was there's a lot of that element as well. Like I mean, it's like I, I you know I was talking to some of the YY bulls and I was like. You know why don't like why wouldn't they just buy back several billion dollars worth of stock here? <laughs> like that's not what management is telling you. They're doing like a hundred million buyback, and they did like a few million in this quarter or whatever. You're like it's absolutely meaningless at that scale with the way it's being valued. Like if you want, like if this business was run purely for the benefit of shareholders, you would pay a one-time massive dividend here, or you do a huge buyback. You wouldn't be sitting around waiting for it to be really like you wouldn't be looking to take that cash and buy some other business and related entity and whatever, which is what seems to happen. Like cash gets destroyed. So like there's uh, there's definitely on top of the just like the regulatory stuff we've got into. There seems to be like you know how Adam Aaron's playing it lately, where he's like I'm you know I, my 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 shareholders don't want me to issue you shares. I'm not going to issue you shares. <laughs> like even though I think we should because. We got like if you actually valued us at, a, at an enterprise value that made sense, it would probably be about Cinemark's multiple. In which case, you know our equity is worth one billion, and it's like thirty because we got five and a half billion or whatever in debt, net cap. Yes, I mean like from an operating standpoint, they have enough cash now, but like it's still relatively leveraged business. And if it was to actually, if it was actually tomorrow to trade to Cinemark's multiple. It's almost inexcusable that they haven't raised cash here. Well, like his argument now is that like the that the the most value creative thing that I can do as CEO for my shareholders is to not give them a reason to sell. <laughs> yeah, keep the game moving. If you actually believe that this whole thing is driven by little guys, uh, little apes holding on to their shares, who who are only, by the way, supposedly holding on to their shares. Because there's these like arbitrary prices that are thrown on like about a million dollars or half a million right. dollars or geometric thousand expansion. Or like, yeah. yeah, geometric uh, explosion. I want to call it expansion, right? <laughs> and then on that giveth day, when uh, when the Lord giveth the squeeze, 
<laughs> it's really the great squeeze the great squeeze of AMC on that day forth henceforth shall be known like when you get to that level and it's like what are they all supposed to do that day they're all supposed to sell right it's really akin to all the stuff you read about with like the QAnon stuff and the dates or the rapture or the yeah, exactly. Mayan apocalypse or it's whatever. Total conspiracy theory because like when that day shall come, we shall all realize massive gains and we shall take them. But no, wait, if you all took them at the same time, that day doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So because you're all you're literally all trying to run through like a teeny little exit door at the same time. So you are actually in in effect preventing Ragnarok, <laughs> the destruction of Asgard. Let's let's go. Let's wrap up with China. The the question that I have here is: Alibaba is uninvestable. It may be bettable. You may think that this will die down. In which case, is there anything that makes this more investable? Like, is there anything you could see happening out of China? Well, yeah, U.S. China having like a meeting where they all sit down and they say, you know what? Here's the SEC. Here's uh, whatever the, the cyber, whatever authority regulator. And they agree on a bunch of things. Look, the Chinese have communicated. I don't know how seriously you want to take it. But in the last week, they've communicated that like they want to crack down on the frauds. So, I mean, you know, if you're short Yella and the names like where you believe the go text and and so on that like there's just a lot of stuff that is unacceptable you know you can't prove a fraud yet right but that's the job of the regulator to figure that out and they're literally out there telling you you know in the last week that they believe that there's frauds coming out of china okay that are using these cayman island and 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 vie structures and the u.s markets to avoid them, right? And they want to close, they want to clamp down on them as well. So, like, if that's what, because we haven't really seen this is where you get into of like you're the U.S. guys. Like, are they are they, are they within your regulatory parameters? For the Chinese, they're not. Like, there's like there's nothing for the Chinese regulator to do in that case if they if they go and they list offshore. They have an operating business in China. It's like having a warehouse until you prove that they're committing a crime. But like. If it's just if if it's a legitimate back end of some operating business and some subsidiary, just it's hosting servers or you know making a game, and the fraud is something else, then how do you prove it? Like it's just, it's like this regulatory black hole that's occurred. You're like a Chinese infrastructure company with a, a Dubai office and a Cayman entity and uh, so on. It's like this is where you get into these whole things where it's like who regulates what? Yeah. And I think the Chinese communicating that they want to crack down, like it's got to go to the next level where the regulators between China and the US sit down and you have like the, uh, the Sino Accords, right? US Sino Accords for you know, the integrity of capital markets. And they agree to collaborate. I mean, like, it seems like we're so far from that, right? I mean, but it doesn't like, sound crazy. You know, like it's not crazy at all. It's probably something that's going to have to happen, and there's going to be politicians who are going who are going to get you there. There's also there's also an argument here that the Chinese are doing are they're they're a step ahead of America 
with how they want to treat their giant companies. And that politically for the communist party, they can do that because they're fucking communists, <laughs> you know? So like they actually have the political capital to bitch slap the, like, you know, big tech. And, right. and, and they're, worried, yeah. they're worried about a, at a time when they don't have it. And, and what does that look like? Well, just look across the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> you right. Know? There was, yeah, the tweet that, or whoever the point that China doesn't want Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and whoever Jeff Bezos, they don't want that equivalent because they have a lot of power in the US and we want to, and it, which is, you know, and I, I sort of think about this point as well. You want, ideally, I think you want to balance the power of uh, business with the power of government, with the power of workers, any concentration of power can be, problematic but um or citizens if you want instead of workers you like you want to balance you want things to balance and yeah you could argue that china's taking a different different view of that balance and yeah that's that's where it could be intractable but it does like i think it's important to look at the the chinese government is obviously a very rational actor and it's just we need to just until you know what their true interests are and whether they reflect the businesses that are based there it's that give them an opportunity it does make it i don't know it makes it hard to make I'm that look at investment. the things that they've been they've been cracking down on lately by the way they've been the e-cigarettes all right video gaming live streaming these these are all things that the chinese government recently has felt need to be reined in i mean like there's a whole industry called brushing around online it's just common practices you know like it becomes an acceptable norm if you're gonna if you're if you're streaming you're gonna hire a brusher brusher is like a, essentially the equivalent of you know a celebrity's pr firm what it, a brusher, look, it's so a brusher is like the the they will that see makes to you it look that better you have, yeah they'll see to it that you have followers they'll see to it that when you're live that there's like you know people commenting in the room et cetera, et cetera. Like, now, to us, that appears as blatant fraud. Now, the argument becomes this, like brushing is essentially harmless if it leads to a revenue boost for the streamer. Because, yeah, it may look like it's more busy, but like if you're willing to spend money and you're enjoying it, like that may not have played the biggest part in your decision. But if you're faking your numbers and it's playing an important part in how your business is valued because these are the key metrics that we judge a business by along these lines, then you got a problem. But like in China, that hasn't been the case. Now what's happened is they've cracked down, all these businesses have been exported outside the country. It's become a playground for everyone who's built live streaming related businesses and live shopping and, and all these other things to go outside of the mainland. And you've got a ton of expertise in the mainland that like you can just pick up the phone, like hey, and I'm launching this. I need you know, I want my downloads to look good. It's just like the first day of anything. You pay for someone to paint uh, a rosier picture, and it costs pennies. So why not invest in it? Marketing, and that's where you kind of run into things with in a lot of these online businesses of like what is custom and what is uh, what is fraud. 
And then and the Chinese government in, in many cases is like, yeah, okay, I mean, you're going to do that. You know what? You're not going to do that here anymore. <laughs> you want to export it, fine. But we don't want people spending money online. Uh, by the way, we want KYC on the people who are spending on these live streamings because you know, a lot of it's being used for money laundering and to circumvent things that we've banned outright. Gambling, you're not paying a license, et cetera. So they're going to crack down in their own country. And outside, globally, you can find this like regulatory black hole where a Chinese business can do this in another, uh, another market and, and essentially be another business. And it's listed offshore. And by the way, it can list here. And they don't really view it as criminal to be brushing up all the metrics because, you know, it's kind of like it's, it's something where it's like, hey, this is industry practice. Everyone does it. There's no harm in it. Now, of course, if the profits and the revenue numbers being reported, like what's that next step to being fully committing the fraud is sign, signing off on cookbooks. And, and remember, with Alibaba, it's not like people haven't been accusing it of accounting fraud for ages. Yeah. You know, I mean, Chanos has been up their butt from day one. Greenberg has written a lot about it. Yeah, the deep throat. J Jcap, I think, has has been skeptical of Alibaba. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. If you've got the Chinese short sellers, you know, Muddy Waters, Wolfpack, etc., we know we'll tell you that like like it's industry practice essentially for a Chinese listed company in the United States to not be transparent with their book, with their accounting. Like, I don't think you could convince Muddy Waters at any Chinese companies. It's just degrees of, you know, brazenness for these entities. Yeah, and I guess that's, yeah, which, again, unless you have a way to back up a differentiated take, like, it's hard to... Well, you have different auditing standards. So, like, it's, it's yeah. hard not to say that that's going to happen, right? So unless you have the guys auditing the U.S. books, I mean, we, we've seen, we've seen how it can be abused in America. It's not like it can't be, it, it can't happen here. But if you're using a certain type of firm and you have a certain type of auditor, it's less likely, right? And with, with respect to China, you haven't made it to that level because you even have the big five auditing firms and like their local affiliates, and that's proved irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, yeah. It's interesting because as we this discussion has been about China, there's still obviously a lot of read throughs and things to think about for just investing in U.S. stocks. But I, yeah, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever seriously considered a position in a China-based company because I think high level, without going to the weeds, a lot of this stuff does. Well, the funny thing me. is, I've been I've been mostly long in my experience with Chinese companies. Yeah, uh, Baidu, Weibo, Baidu, and I. By the way, like you can sit here and say, "How come you're jaded? Do you have bad experiences?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody uh, listening to this like, podcast would ever think you're jaded. Like I'm literally, I'm literally that guy who has multiple times been like, "Okay, but not in this case," you know, and it can't be that bad, and it's largely priced in, you know, I'm like. I'm I'm getting it at a discount because of that, and in this case, it's like, you know, it's much more verifiable and real, and it's it goes back to those degrees of brazenness that uh, you see with uh, with Chinese names, and that's proven. Like I mean, to, like the extremes are the companies will trade at negative enterprise value, so like I'm actually I'm actually not really 
even surprised anymore by the discount you can get. How like how low can it go when the doubts are introduced? Because I mean, if, if you look at what's going on between this Baidu YY Live acquisition, that's a classic example. Is that deal going to get killed? Are they going to reverse that transaction? I mean, like you could actually say that's a material risk, and that's why the stock is priced this way. I mean, versus that the cash is just not real, and like that that could explain the stock continuing to trade at at levels that. I mean, set aside what you think the Beagle Live business is worth, but like these disconnects that that form. But like having been through this with the Baidu business and having been and having seen how disclosures come out of these companies and when they perform poorly, like corporate governance is an issue. There's just no getting around it because they don't think like insider trading is definitely not something that's been cracked down upon over there. That's another like, you know, let's call it uh the equivalent of like a white lie. They don't feel that like, there's, I, I, like, is there an example of someone who's just been thrown into like, you know, a cell and just disappeared in China because uh, his company uh, committed insider trading in the U S that harmed U S investors. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it's, again, it's where it's, it's worth remembering that the capital markets as a thing in the modern capital markets, I don't know a great deal of early 20th century Chinese eco- economics, but the modern capitalistic system has only been around for, what, maybe 40 years if, if what Deng Xiaoping came in in 79, I think. Um, and that was a gradual process. And I, I'm sure I'm getting my details wrong, but the, so yeah, it's like a lot of this, when you're thinking about all the things that you have to tackle, well, first they want to get to this and then they want to get to this. And meanwhile, investors are coming in and looking at Alibaba as Amazon like to like, and that's where you have to be. That's where that context yeah, it happens fast. And the pressures, once the money is flowing like that, I imagine are, are pretty severe. All right, let's 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 stop it there. But good stuff. I mean, it's it's a fascinating topic, even if again you don't. I agree. And by the way, I probably I, I probably think we should probably be buying buy Baba here. That's, that's the irony of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pun. Like, I mean, as a pun, as an investment, as a whatever. Like, does it really matter that you can't explain what is going to resolve this? Something will. And that that becomes an investment thesis. And it's probably in, in, in 2021 better than most investment thesis. Well, as long as eyes are open on what that means, I think that, yeah, I, I hear where that's coming from for sure. So, all right. Good stuff, Akra. That's a, that's a, a right, M. Bro. Night Shalaman twist to end the, this episode. I like it. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.